The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of God for the people of God. I uh, was at a lead pastor's cohort this week. I drove down to Arkansas to get together with some pastors that I uh, get together with once or twice a year, just for encouragement and sort of growing together as leaders. And so it was about a six-hour drive south to Arkansas, and uh, on the way back, my wife asked if I would stop at Ikea. So I did that. Have you guys been there? I mean, it's a maddening place to go. Uh, number one, you know, it's in Kansas City, so it's, you know, we don't have one here, so it's, there's sort of like a mystique to it, like, oh, this is a place we don't have in Omaha, right? You have to go to a different city to go there. Um, they have the store laid out like a labyrinth where they make you just walk through this maze to actually get to where you're going. And it's really probably super brilliant merchandising. I'm sure there's all kinds of science why they make you do that. It's just really frustrating when you're just trying to get a couple things and you got to walk through this whole sort of labyrinth to get your stuff. So I'm buying a couple of things and uh, turns out one of them is what they call uh, full service. What that means is you can't get it yourself. They give you a slip and they send one of their people to go get it. And then you have to go to the pickup counter and pick it up. If I'd have known that, I would have just bought it on the app and just driven there and got it. But I went through the store. I get to the checkout. They're like, oh yeah, we got to give you this number. Go wait over there. So I go over to the little waiting area in Ikea. And, you know, it's actually, they have it laid out pretty well where there's a TV up there and it shows your number and it shows you the exact time that your order will be ready. So I think I looked at my watch, I think it was 1.45 on my watch, and my, my number was up there, and it said, your order will be ready at 1.55. Like, all right, 10 minutes, that's not terrible. So I just waited for 10 minutes. What do you do when you're waiting? I don't know, you pull out your phone and check the news, right? You look around at the other people that are waiting and try to, like, you know, see what they're waiting for. How big is their order? What piece of furniture, what piece of Swedish furniture are they waiting on, you know? And uh, finally, they call the number, and uh, the guy's like, number 892-892. I was like, 
I guess if you're just kind of like that guy that has to call numbers all day, you've got to make it interesting somehow. you got to have some fun with it. So I'm like, all right, I respect that. So I go and I get my thing. And then I loaded it in the car. And that was a whole nother ordeal that I won't go into. But anyway, as I had that whole experience, it just reminded me of how much I don't like to wait. Perhaps you're like me. Like, we're just not used to having to wait for anything, right? We live in a culture, first of all, that is very driven by efficiency and productivity. And so most of us just want to be getting stuff done. We don't just want to be waiting around with no purpose. In addition, we live in a culture where the the goal of, like, you know, businesses is to make things more and more convenient and efficient. And so we're just not used to having to wait for anything. Like, if you have to wait for something, it's kind of weird, right? It's kind of a little bit inconvenient. We're just not good at waiting. And so I came back and I was like, I wonder how much time in my life, I wonder how much time the average person spends waiting in lines somewhere at a place like Ikea. So I started doing the research. Here's the answer. You you spend 235 days of your life waiting. Or in the queue, as our British friends like to say. In the queue, in line. That's how much of your life you spend waiting. Two-thirds of a year, over the course of your life, you're just going to be waiting for stuff. And as an American, that's probably going to frustrate you. But actually, as a Christian, you need to learn to embrace that. And here's why. Because the Christian life is a life of waiting. Uh, That's why it's confusing to many people, especially many Western people, because we're just not used to waiting. We want God to work now. We want our problems to be solved now. We want our lives to change now. We want transformation to happen now. We want God to show up now. We're uncomfortable with the idea of having to wait. But I want to remind you of the characters in the Bible and how pervasive the theme of waiting is all through the scriptures. Just think about this short sampling. Abraham waited 13 years for the son God promised him. The Israelites waited 40 years to enter the promised land that God had promised them. David waited 14 years for the throne that God had promised him. Jeremiah told God's people that they would have to wait 70 years of exile in Babylon. And when the angels finally appeared to the shepherds in Bethlehem, God's people had been waiting for 400 years since the prophet Malachi to hear a single word from God. We are a waiting people. God's people have always been a waiting people. The Christian life is a life of waiting. And in fact, A theology of waiting, learning how to wait, is actually one of the gifts of Christianity to the world. Uh, You you may know this, many ancient cultures and philosophies had a cyclical view of time and of history. You guys remember the Lion King? The circle of life, right? If you were a fundamentalist Christian in the 1990s, you couldn't go watch this movie because it was like Buddhist in its view of time, and we didn't do that, right? We're not about that. But that, that idea of there being like a circle or a cycle to life, and it just, history just kind of repeats itself over and over again. Even the Hindu idea of like reincarnation and rebirth, this is a very common ancient way of understanding the world and of time. And into that world broke Christianity with a linear view of history that says the world had a beginning. We're living now in the middle, and there will be an end. History is 
started somewhere, is going somewhere, and will end somewhere. That was a revolutionary way of understanding time and history. And so what that means for us is that we are living in the middle of history, and we are waiting for the end of history. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that has a beginning and an ending. And so the Christian life is inherently a life of waiting. And that's what the Advent season reminds us of. It reminds us that the Christian life is a life of waiting. If you go through our family photo archive, you'll find this very odd photo of two of my kids posing with a UPS man. Kind of a weird photo to have in your family photo album. This photo is dated July 9th, 2007. My kids are much older than that now. On that same day, there's also a photo of my wife holding an envelope and me holding the envelope and then me sitting on the couch with the kids holding the envelope. You probably wonder, what's the big deal with the envelope? Why are we taking photos with the UPS man? That, I promise you that was a weird day for the UPS man. He was like, really, you want to take a photo? That's kind of an odd thing. Well, that envelope contained something we'd been waiting for for over two years. In that envelope was the photograph and the vital statistics of the child who would become our adopted daughter. My daughter, Grace, who's now 16 and who's teaching your kids in the catechism class this morning. And we've been waiting two years for that moment. And the waiting for two years had been waiting on government bureaucracy and paperwork and background checks and fingerprints and all this, you know, stuff you have to do to go through the process of adoption. But that day, that envelope, that photograph changed how we waited. Our waiting took on a sense of joy and urgency and excitement and newness and a freshness because we weren't waiting on government paperwork or background checks. We were now waiting for this particular little girl, this human being with a name and a story. She was going to be our daughter and our sister. And so we were full of hope and anticipation. It changed how we waited. See, knowing what we're waiting for always changes how we wait, doesn't it? And that's the point James wants to make in our text this morning. The Christian life is a life of waiting, and knowing what we're waiting for changes how we wait. So that's really the sermon outline this morning. I want to look at what we're waiting for, and then how we wait. Because knowing what we're waiting for changes how we wait. And so James shows us both. Let's look, first of all, at what we are waiting for. Why is the Christian life a life of waiting? What is it that we're waiting for? James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What are we waiting for? Well, it tells us right here, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. There is a day fixed in history, known only to God himself, when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. The Bible speaks about this day repeatedly. This is foundational to the New Testament understanding of the world. In fact, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament, an average of once every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. And the most important thing about that day is not the what, but the who. It is the coming of the Lord. 
This is speaking, friends, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a real person, a divine person. And the day of his coming is a real day. He is coming. At this time of year, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, a lot of us host family, right? You have family coming to the house to celebrate holidays, maybe family coming in town from other places. When I was a kid, our house was sort of the nerve center, the place where a lot of people would gather for the holidays. And so we'd have family coming in from South Dakota, sometimes California and Arizona, and people would come for Christmas. And, you know, there, were, there was a certain cousin my brother and I just didn't love hanging out with, you know? And so Christmas time, we're like, do they have to come? You probably have people like this in your family. Do they have to come over? And my parents are like, yes, they are family. And so, yes, they have to come. And you are going to learn to live with and tolerate and enjoy them because they're family, right? Um, and, and honestly, like, I appreciated this cousin in many ways. There were just things that my brother and I just like found odd and didn't get along with very well. And that's pretty normal, right? As you think about your family, you've got the weird uncle. She's like, yeah, I guess he's coming over for Christmas, but don't get that one conversation started because that's where things are going to go off the rails, right? Um, Here's the point. When a family member comes over at Christmas, you don't just get part of them. You get all of them. There's no way for you to receive part of a person. If someone is coming, they are coming with the fullness of who they are, and you're going to engage with them and relate to them in the fullness of who they are. Likewise, when the Lord Jesus comes, James reminds us, he is coming in the fullness of who he is. It's not part of Jesus that is coming. It's the Lord Jesus in all of his fullness. This text draws out two aspects of who Jesus is. Notice verse 11, it says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's part of who Jesus is. But it also says, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is coming in all of his glorious compassion and mercy and in all of his beautiful moral rigor and judgment and holiness. Some people you see want a one-dimensional Jesus, right? There's some people that the Jesus they want is the compassionate and merciful Jesus who doesn't have any judgment and doesn't call anybody to account for anything. Other people kind of want the judgment Jesus. They just want to make sure he judges everybody else except them, right? But it's like, we want Jesus to come back and you know, bring all, clean all this mess up. But notice, when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes in the fullness of who he is. James is saying, it's the Lord who is coming, the Lord who is the judge of all the earth, the Lord who is compassionate and merciful. This is who Jesus Christ is. He is coming. There's another text in the New Testament that speaks to us of this day that is coming. Listen as I read it. It's in 2 Thessalonians. The language is a little more stark than the language in James. It says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. What I want you to notice about this text is it speaks of one coming that has two responses to it. Did you notice that? 
There's one coming one day when the Lord Jesus is returning. There are two responses to that day. On the one hand, the text says, there will be those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But then it also says, he will be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. Knowing what we are waiting for changes how we wait. If you know that you do not know God, if you know that you have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're likely not awaiting this day with joy and anticipation and hope. Rather, there's probably a sense of fear or uncertainty about the return of Jesus. And that's as it should be. Because Jesus is the judge of all the earth, right? He's not coming like Santa Claus. He's coming to separate good from evil and right from wrong and to bring justice to the world. And that's a problem for every single one of us. See, every one of us wants to divide the world between good people and bad people. Have you noticed this? This is a natural, common human inclination. We just draw the line differently depending on where we find ourselves, right? So sometimes, you know, we think like, well, you know, the, since we live in the West, capitalism is on the good side and communists are the bad people, right? Or since we're Christians, Christians are on the good side of the line, non-Christians are on the bad side of the line. Or if you're a Muslim, Muslims are on the good side and non-Muslims are on the bad side. Or, right, you can draw the line however you want, where the good people are over here in this camp with me and the bad people are over there. The way the Bible frames the problem is to say this, the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every human person. That's the problem. You can't separate the world into good people and bad people because that line runs right through you. So Jesus coming as the judge of all the earth is a problem, not just for those bad people who aren't like you. It is a problem for you and it is a problem for me. But notice that this text in 2 Thessalonians also reminds us of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is the good news that the judge of all the earth was himself judged. He came in our place to bear the justice that is waiting for us and to take it upon himself, and he did so at the cross. And so the way to escape the vengeance of God, the final justice of God that is coming to all the world, the way to escape that is to flee to the cross, to take refuge in Jesus and in what he has done to receive the mercy that God offers to everyone in and through Jesus Christ. That's why this text says, for those who believe, for those who obey the gospel, for those who receive the good news that Jesus has come to bear our judgment, they'll be marveling at the one in whom they've believed. This will be a day of glory and joy for them. Notice it doesn't say a day of boasting and satisfaction for them like because they, they were on the good side of things. It says it will be a day where they marvel at Jesus. So knowing what we're waiting for changes how we wait. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the coming of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a real person and who by his mercy and kindness has set us free from his judgment. See, the good news is Jesus, who is the judge of all the earth, who is coming at the end of history to right all the wrongs in the world, he's also the same Jesus who has died on the cross and opens his arms wide in mercy to all who will come to him. 
And knowing that that's who's waiting for us, knowing that we've received his mercy, that changes how we wait. We no longer wait in fear and uncertainty and worry, but in hope and in joy and anticipation because we know who it is that's coming. Now, how does knowing that change how we wait? Well, James shows us we wait with patience, with steadfastness, and with integrity. Notice, first of all, we wait with patience. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is one of these wonderful images. We've said all throughout James that he's a very earthy writer. He's grabbing hold of images we can make sense of. Now, living in Nebraska, none of us are too far removed from agriculture, are we? Most of you probably have a family member somewhere in Nebraska or Iowa who is a farmer or who is involved in agriculture. And farming is a vocation that breeds patience. See how the farmer waits, James says. You put seed in the ground, you water it, you tend to it, and what do you do? You wait for it to grow. And nothing you do can make that happen faster. There's a reason that planting season in this part of the world is always April and May, and that harvest is always November. Do you know why? Because that's how long it takes corn to grow. And ain't nothing speeding that up. But that process is happening every single year. And so you know why farmers are patient? Because they know what they're waiting for. They know that God has created the world in such a way that seeds, when planted in the dirt, bear fruit. The harvest is going to come. And so apart from a natural disaster, the harvest will be there. And what's amazing is if you think about all the things that can happen, hailstorms and droughts and tornadoes and natural disasters, in spite of the fact that all of those are always a threat, do you know what else also happens every year? Harvest. Every year, farmers plant seed and harvest seed. Why? Because they know the earth is going to bear fruit. You also like that, James says, be patient. Like a seed planted in the ground that will grow, the coming of the Lord is happening. It is coming. So just be patient. There's nothing that's going to change that. That's going to happen. He's coming. Just like harvest is coming, just like a seed planted in the ground is going to grow, therefore, you can relax. Knowing what we are waiting for changes how we wait. And James says the first way it should change how you wait is just you, you can wait with patience. To say it another way, Christians should be a uniquely non-anxious people. We are all prone to look at the world and fret and worry and get all agitated about how bad everything is or how bad everything is going to get or, you know, how confusing things are. What James is saying is, hey, you know what? No need to do that. Just be patient. We're waiting, living in the middle of history, waiting for the coming of the Lord, and he's coming. And he's going to make everything right. And guess what? Until that day comes, we're going to experience all the things that people have always experienced, right? Upheaval and 
natural disasters and famine and war and strange governmental things and, you know, nations rising and falling. That's happened all throughout history. Cool. Just be patient. Don't be fretting about that stuff. Christians are a non-anxious people. We wait with patience. Second, James says, we are to wait with steadfastness. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, at first glance, the word steadfast sounds a lot like the word patience, doesn't it? Kind of feels like it's in the same category. But here's how it's different. To be steadfast means to persevere under suffering or to endure. It's not just waiting for rain like a farmer waits for rain. It's enduring. And as an example of what this looks like, James points us to the prophets and to Job who endured under difficult circumstances. This is another one of those things I just love about James is most of the time when he's reaching for an example, he's just telling you, yeah, go read the Old Testament. Yeah, you should just read the Old Testament. There's plenty for you to learn there. If you want to know what life looks like, just go look what life looked like for God's people back then. So here's an example. He's saying, hey, the prophets and Job are an example of patience in suffering and of steadfastness. Let me remind you of some of the stories of the prophets. The prophet Jeremiah was beaten and thrown into a dungeon for preaching the word of God. The prophet Hosea was called by God to marry an unfaithful wife who cheated on him. The prophet Ezekiel cooked his food over cow dung. Elijah was sentenced to death by Queen Jezebel. Job suffered the loss of all of his children and his wealth. Yet all of these were faithful worshipers of God. And so James says, hey, consider their steadfastness. Be like them. Their endurance is something to celebrate and to model our lives after. Knowing what we're waiting for changes how we wait. You're invited to wait with steadfastness. Not letting suffering erode your trust in God. Uh, One of our elders here for quite some time was Gary Nebaker, a former New Testament professor at Grace University. And, And he used to always say this, hey, nobody abandons the faith when things are going well. Nobody doubts God when everything's going great. Do you know when you doubt the faith and when you doubt God? It's when you suffer, when things aren't going great, when bad things happen, when your life feels like it's confusing or messy or frustrating. That's when we're prone to not endure. That's when we're prone to doubt, is God good and is God faithful and is all this even worth it? James is saying, listen, that's why endurance... And steadfastness matters because you're going to go through seasons like that in life, just like the prophets did. And so when you're in those seasons, hey, just know that you need to wait with steadfastness. You need to persevere. You need to endure. James is saying, friends, there is a day coming, and it is a real day when all of that hardship and suffering and difficulty will seem small in comparison to the glory and the beauty that we experience. So how do we wait? We wait with patience. We wait with steadfastness. And finally, we are to wait with integrity. Look at verse 12. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I've been telling you guys all through James, just, he's just riffing on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's, it's like an extended commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. If this sounds familiar, it's because Jesus said it in Matthew 5, right? In that famous section in Matthew where he says, hey, you've heard it said, you know, fulfill your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take any oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And James here is just vamping on that same theme and saying, hey, that's how you should wait. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I wonder if you've ever been kind of mystified by this. Like, why did Jesus feel a need to talk about this? Why does James say, hey, above all, don't swear by heaven or by earth or by any other. Why is that a big deal? Well, in our culture, we don't use oaths in the same way that they did in the first century. And so it's a little bit distant to us. But think about this. What kind of people need to swear oaths? What kind of kid was it in grade school that said, no, man, I swear on my mother's grave. This is true. You know what kind of kid that was? The kid that probably was telling a lie, right? People who need to do that are people that you're not sure they're telling the truth. And so they need to appeal to something higher than them and say, no, no, really this time I'm telling the truth. You know, there are some people in your life that you can count on their word and other people you're like, hey, why don't you pay before we show up to do the work, right? I want a down payment on the front end because I just, you're not a trustworthy person. James says, as we wait for the Lord's return, we are to wait with integrity. We're to be people of honesty and honor. People who say what we mean and mean what we say. You've seen the consistent theme in James on speech and the tongue. And here it is again. You're saying, hey, part of how we wait is we wait with integrity. We wait with careful speech. We wait being people of our word who say what we mean and mean what we say, and come through on our obligations. Listen, I know this is true for you because it's true for me. Um, the fact that Christ is coming back, at least if you profess the Apostles' Creed and mean it, you probably believe that theologically. But I'm not sure it animates my existence every day. And it probably doesn't yours either, right? It's, it's one of those things that feels a little bit abstract. And okay, yeah, Jesus is going to come back. But think about this. If you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow morning at like 8 a.m., you'd be a lot careful, a lot more careful what you said the rest of today, wouldn't you? Like you probably wouldn't want to go out just like cursing the world. You're like, you know what? Man, I'm just going to, I'm going to be a lot more patient. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. No use going out like, you know, cursing everyone. I'm just going just gonna to try to hold my tongue a little bit and just try to have a good night, right? Most of us, that would actually change how we go through the next 24 hours. James is just saying, hey, that day is a real day. That coming is a real coming. You ought to live in light of it. So wait with integrity. Be the kind of people who in your speech show that you're waiting patiently for a Lord who's going to right all wrongs and come and bring his good and perfect kingdom and right all the injustices in the world. And because we know that's coming, we can wait now with patience and steadfastness and integrity. The Christian life is a life of waiting and knowing what we're waiting for changes how we wait. So let's be people of patience like a good farmer. 
Let's be people of steadfastness like the prophets. Let's be people of integrity who say what we mean and mean what we say. And what's interesting is Christian worship is part of God's means to form us into that kind of people. Isn't it? I mean, think about what we're doing when we gather here from Sunday to Sunday. What you're probably doing as an individual is to say, okay, I need to go to church today. Like, this is good for me. I need to be here. But how weird, how unique is it that God's people gather every week for worship on the same day? What are we doing as we do that? Well, part of what we're doing is we are inhabiting time in a certain way. We are saying by our gathering, hey, we are a people called out of the world, living according to a certain story and with a certain expectation of what the world is about. We are a people who are waiting for the coming of the Lord, and we gather each Sunday to live in between, to live in that waiting, to practice that waiting together in a room of other people who are also waiting for that same thing. If you think about it, the church gathers on Sunday, which biblically is both the first day and the eighth day of the week. It's the first day, the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so since Jesus rose from the dead, the church has always gathered on the first day of the week, on Sunday. As you read the New Testament, the apostles after the resurrection gather on the first day of the week. And the first day of the week looks back to creation, to what God set up in the first place, and also looks back to the resurrection and says, because Jesus rose from the dead, that's the day history changed. So we gather on the first day of the week, looking back to the cross and the resurrection. But Sunday is also the eighth day of the week, the day that looks ahead to the rest that is to come, the day that is to come, the kingdom that is to come, the moment when all that we know of a seven-day week in time and history is caught up into this new heavens and new earth, the rest that awaits us as God's people in the future. And so by gathering on Sundays, we're always looking back to the cross and the resurrection. We're always looking forward to the kingdom of God. And we just gather practicing that little ritual. Now, you might not think about that intentionally every week when you come in this room, but what I want to show you is that like, just by being here, you're being formed into this kind of a person. You're being formed into the kind of person who has a sense of patience because we've been gathering here in this building now for three years and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And you know what? We might be here next Sunday again. So we get to practice patience together. Like, well, guess we're having church again because Jesus hasn't come back. By gathering in this room together, we get to practice steadfastness because you know what? Every week when we gather in this room, somebody in this room, multiple people in this room, sometimes most of the people in this room are dealing with hardship, suffering, and painful circumstances. As I look out at this room every Sunday, I can see particular stories of like, oh, yep, I know what that person's facing right now, and that's hard. And so we together get to practice steadfastness and endurance. That like, you know what? There's people in the room that the win for them this week is being in the room because things are hard. And so as Mike reminded us as we were praying, sometimes we just get to bear each other up in our prayers and in our worship and carry one another along through those seasons of steadfastness and endurance. And as we gather here, God forms us into a people of integrity, a people who are shaped by his word so that we're more careful with our words, a people who learn to speak the good news of grace to one another. It's not an accident that some of the things we do verbally as we gather together are confessing our sin and professing our faith. We're doing together 
as a corporate body what we ought to be doing individually, right? Confessing our sin to the Lord and speaking out loud His promises and His grace and what we believe about Him. So simply by being in this room, as we do this weekly, God is forming us into this kind of a people. A people who, because we know what we're waiting for, are changed in how we wait. So friends, it's an honor to wait here with you for yet another Sunday. Let's pray and let's come to the Lord's table together. Would you join me? Our Father in heaven, we confess to you our impatience. We are not good at waiting. And much of our doubt and cynicism arises because we just expect you to do things faster according to our timeline in ways that work for us. So we confess to you that we need this word from James this morning. Thank you for speaking this word in Scripture and to our hearts this morning. Help us to be a people who wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. Thank you that that day is a real day. And so we look forward, Jesus, to the day of your return. And we ask that because we know what we're waiting for, it would change how we wait. Make us a people of patience. Make us steadfast and enduring through trial. And make us a people of integrity. And do that work even now as we sing songs to you and as we come to your table to remember your death and resurrection and to anticipate the new heavens and the new earth together. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.